Last week we were in Romans chapter 10 and we uh, were, were on the theme of that great uh, growing rhetorical tour de force of Paul in that section where he, he asked, how are we going to believe unless we hear? How are we going to hear unless somebody preaches it? How is somebody going to preach it unless they're sent? Unless we are sent, unless there are those who feel called to go. And Paul concludes all that with just how beautiful are the feet of those then who are sent, who go, who preach Christ. And then he says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, that the Gospel is the power to save, and we are an army of voices. That we are the voice of the Gospel in a world that needs to hear it. And so I wanted to take a brief uh, rabbit trail or excursus uh, down that topic for the next two or three weeks. And so we're going to talk about that, sharing the gospel. Um, I think it is one of those things that is at the center of our mission, and it should be at the center of the heart of the church, and that we need to have it in front of us regularly. The theme this morning, as we uh, jump back into the topic, really the, the title of the sermon is When God Rejoices. And for me, then, what I'm driving at in this, and where we're going to end in this, is the motive. Uh, why, we do, why do we share our faith? You know, why do we... Love the lost and share the gospel. And the answer is joy. But we're going to get there. First, we're going to read Luke chapter 15, 1 to 7. Luke chapter 15 is three parables. They're all parable about something getting lost. First parable is a lost sheep. Second parable is a lost coin. Third parable is a lost son or a prodigal son. Three lost things and they get found. But they all are driving at the same thing. They all have the same punchline through all of them. And we'll, we're going to spend our time in the first one. And even as we um, come to this one, I want us to notice that in chapter 14, um, he's been talking about the cost of discipleship. And so 25 and following, he, he speaks about us needing to hate our own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, even our own life if we want to come and follow Jesus, that we have to take up our cross, that we have to count the cost. If we're going to go to war or build a castle or follow Jesus, we need to count the cost, he says. And then he says this in, in verse 15. It says, after he said all those things, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. So... Here in this grumbling, Jesus tells them this parable, tells them three parables. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go into the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it upon his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. The Word of God. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you are a God who speaks and you are not silent. We thank you that you can speak this to us even this morning and we long to hear your voice. And I pray that in the midst of this sermon, in the midst of my speaking, you would make your voice heard. 
That You would speak to our hearts. That You would capture our imaginations. That You would fill us with the joy of salvation in such a way that it changes us and our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus welcomes sinners. He gives us His parable. It's really in four verses. You can say it's in three verses. One to three introduces the parable. In verse 7, the last verse, actually, he interprets the parable or gives the punchline. And the parable is actually just these middle three verses. But we want to look at the first three verses because they give us the context as to why Jesus tells, not just one, but all three of these parables. Why does he tell it? Why does he say this? So when he reached verse 15, after giving the cost of discipleship, we read that the tax collectors... And the sinners were drawing near to him, and the scribes are complaining. So we got three groups. You got Jesus and the disciples, you know, who are doing the teaching. You know, you've got the sinners, the tax collectors and the sinners who are drawing near, and you've got these Pharisees and teachers of the law who are complaining. Now we talk about tax collectors and sinners, it's really a way of saying you got uh, really bad sinners, and then you're run of the mill sinners. Right? Tax collectors get called out for special. You know, how would you like your sin to be called out and placed at the beginning? Like, there's all the other sinners, but there's also your sin, and then there are other sinners, right? It's singled out because they're the worst of the worst. They're not just sinners. They're, they're betrayers of the nation, right? They're treasonous. They are, the tax collectors are those who are collaborating with Rome, collecting taxes from Israel, lining their own pockets, Right? These, these aren't just run-of-the-mill Jewish sinners. They're, they're actually betrayers, treacherous. So they're the worst. They always get called out. So you got like really bad sinners and sinners. you got this group. But they knew their need. They're the desperate ones. Now there's a sense in coming into this, all of us always need to remember. You can't talk about it and not say, you know, we're, we're all sinners. Right? There's a sense that we're all in that group. And we never get away from that. We can never forget that. Right? We are justified, and I think it was Luther who said, we are simultaneously just and sinners. Right? That we still struggle. We are not righteous in ourselves. We need to remember that, but when, they, when he calls them the tax collectors and the sinners, he's making the point, this is actually that group that doesn't know God and aren't even trying to live a right life. You know, the tax collectors and some of these guys, like, they're, they're the ones who aren't, they don't go to church. Right? They're not going to temple. They're not, even, they're not part of the rituals and the formalities of religion. And they don't know the law and they're not really trying to keep it. Right? They're, they're the ones who don't know God and they don't really even try. So you have the tax collectors and the sinners. At least this is the way even the Pharisees would think of them. But this is the group, interestingly, who's drawing near. Right? In verse 1 it says, The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus to hear Him. They want to hear Him. To get closer. They're interested. It appears that they are actually the ones that Jesus talks about in the last verse of 14. After He talks all about the cost of discipleship, He ends all that saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. These are the guys, it seems, who hear. They want to draw near and hear more. They're interested. Jesus, tell us more. So they're pressing in. The lost, the desperate, spiritually poor and hungry. 
It seems that God is awakening them, giving them ears to hear, and they're drawn in. So you got Jesus doing the teaching and, and, and the, the, the tax collectors and the sinners drawing near and they want to hear more. And then you get this third group in verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Right? It says, these guys grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Right? And we need to know and see that that's an insult. They're not just describing, huh, Jesus you know, hangs out with... This is an insult. They think this is absolutely wrong. This is, this is bad form for religious leaders. You don't hang out with sinners, and you certainly don't eat with them. There are all kinds of sanitary laws. You've got to wash your hands and do this kind of thing, and you've got to be sterile. Like They have all these rules when it comes to eating, but these guys don't. You don't eat with these. They're unclean. Right? So this is where com- their mindset is. This is an insult. Jesus, you and I both know this is a revelation of God's grace and His mercy that he would receive and eat with sinners like us. Like we, we, that's a badge of honor. It's a revelation of his glory, but it is exactly what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law cannot see. They're too busy being offended. See, they're the ones who do not have ears to hear. It's interesting. You've got the religious people, right? These are the guys who go to church every week. They read their Bible. They know the Scripture. You know, they're, the, they're upstanding in their community. You'd want your daughter to date their son because, you know, they're a good family. Kind of. These are these people, and the religious people, it's the sinners and the tax collectors who hear Jesus, have ears to hear and draw near. And it's these guys who it seems like they didn't even hear what Jesus had to say about the cost of following Him. They are too busy being offended. Offended, their sensibilities are offended by the idea that Jesus is showing kindness and respect to sinful people like this. It's intended as an insult. He receives and he eats with sinners. See, in Luke 18, later on, a few, verses, a few chapters later, in verse 9, it says this there are some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, they do that through the entire Gospels. That's who these guys as a group are. We all know there are some, like Nicodemus, who find Christ. But by and large, there's this group who trust in themselves that they're righteous and they treat everybody else with contempt. They're keeping all the laws. They're going to temple and all these people are their sinners. You don't even eat with them. They're contemptuous, which is why Jesus, they think, is crossing a line. Unfortunately, and we'll come back to this in the applications, unfortunately, it is how many in the church come across to the world. We're the good people. And we look down on or contempt with those out there who are messing everything up, who are messing up our world and our country. But this is exactly why Jesus tells this parable. Right? And it says in verse 3, So, so, Right? Following on verse 2, they grumbled. The, the religious leaders were grumbling that Jesus was hanging out and respecting and being nice to sinners, sinful people. So he tells them these parables. This is why he tells the parables. To help self-righteous religious people understand the heart of God. For those who don't know Him. For the lost. Right? Jesus is drawing a stark contrast here between the narrow, grudging souls of the, the religious leaders and the heart 
the welcoming and gracious heart of God. And he does it by telling them a parable to try to show them the heart of God. And so he tells them this parable is really simple. The first two parables he tells are very short. And then he tells the prodigal son, which is quite long. But he tells a simple story. It's really a simple story, parable. It's, and it's a parable about God's heart and God's priorities. We have to see that. Right? It's a parable about God's heart and his priorities. It's a simple story of a man who has a nice, even-numbered flock. He's got 100. Right? That would make Sheldon happy. Right? Not 99 or 101. It's 100. One goes missing. And the shepherd goes looking. Right? One goes missing and the shepherd goes looking. Now he's telling this, he's, I think he's telling all three as a rebuke to the religious leaders, the self-righteous religious leaders. And so he gives imagery and he uses things that they would recognize, that they should know. They are the teachers of the law. So when he tells a story about a flock that then sheep go missing, you know, they should be thinking Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray each to our own way, right? All we like sheep have gone astray, every one, right? And this is what they don't get. They think they're, they're righteous and they can't hang out with sinners, right? Jesus is saying, no, that's why I say we're all sinners and we all need Jesus desperately and we're never above anyone else because it is by grace we have been saved. And so he says all, he, he gives this image of the sheep going astray and the reality is that's all of us and they should know that. Isaiah 53 is the the, the piece of the Old Testament, I think, that is as often applied to Jesus as any other, it's there that he says that, that he was crushed for our iniquities. That he bore our sin. All right, that's Isaiah 53. And so the shepherd seeks the lost. He does not wait for the sheep to come back. He, the shepherd's not like, you know, I hope he finds his way home. You know, dumb sheep, it's, you know, serves him right. You know, if the wolf gets him out there in the wilderness, he's going to die for... You know, the shepherd doesn't wait for him to come back. He doesn't, he's not scolding the sheep for its lostness. He simply goes after it. He really wants lost sheep to be found. He really wants lost sheep to come home. Right? That's the heart of the shepherd. And so he takes it upon himself. He goes where the lost one is. He goes and finds it wherever it is. The leaders in Israel should know this. Jesus shouldn't have to be teaching them. This is God's heart. Ezekiel 34 verses 11 and 12 say this. Behold, behold, understand this, he says. I, I myself. That's an emphatic. Right? That's like I three times. I, I myself will search for my sheep. Right? This is God speaking. He emphatically, I I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep and they've been scattered. So I'm going to seek out my sheep and I will rescue them. From all the places, wherever they've been scattered, I will go and rescue them. Right? This is the heart of God. Right? It's been, this is something they should know and recognize. And we need to see Jesus, in a sense, is putting himself in the place of God. He is the shepherd. Who is seeking the lost sheep? That's what he's telling these guys. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Right? This is the heart of God. You're the ones, as the shepherds of Israel, who've missed the boat in your contempt and separation from those who need you most. 
Now, remember, this is how Jesus is explaining to the self-righteous why he hangs out with sinful people. Right? That's what he's doing. He's explaining to these guys why he hangs out with them, why he treats them with love and respect, why he welcomes them and is kind to them, even though they're sinful, lost people, very confused, very dysfunctional. Right? Their, their lives are messy and broken. They're downright rebellious, sinful. But Jesus is telling the self-righteous that He really wants these people to come home. And He's going to seek them out. And Jesus is telling them, this is how it's done. Right? This is how it's done. If you're going to seek the lost, if you're going to save the lost, how will they hear unless somebody, how are they going to believe unless they hear How are they going to hear unless you tell them? You won't even talk with them. You won't eat with them. You won't rub shoulders with them. You separate yourself from them. You refuse to get your hands dirty. How will they hear unless somebody tells them? How how is anybody going to tell them if they're not sent? And Jesus is saying, this is how it's done. If you're going to seek the lost, you have to go where they are. You have to be with them. Jesus mingled freely with lost people. He didn't hate them. He moved toward them. And they moved toward him because he moved toward them. Because he welcomed them. They wanted to hear more. And they drew near to him as the passage starts out telling us. He invited them into his life so so they can know him. Right? He eats with them. You know, it's over dinner that you get to know people. Right? Don't we have dinner with each other so we can catch up what's going on in your life and get to know you? And if you've not, you know, done it before, like tell me about yourself and your family. That's where we... Build relationship. This is what Jesus does. He welcomes them and he eats with them. So they can know him and he can know them. But what I want us to see in this parable, and really where the, I want us to see several things and we're going to do that in just a minute, but what I want us to see clearly at this point in verses 5 to 7 is this parable that literally more than half of it is that it's all about joy. It's just such a beautiful, happy picture, right? It's just all about joy. The word joy appears in all three of the next three verses, right? And seeking and finding the loss that he just said happened is all about the joy of it, right? Look at verse 5, right? He says, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoicing, he heads for home. In verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me. And then in verse 7, Jesus, as he gives the punchline, he finishes the parable, gives him the punchline, so I tell you, here's my point. If you haven't figured it out yet, this is what I'm trying to say. There's going to be more joy in heaven when one sinner repents than over the 99 self-righteous of you. <laughs> you know, over one sinner, God, he says, well, there's going to be a party. Pull it together. Get your friends. Right? The shepherd finds the lost sheep in verse 5, and it says he puts it on his shoulder, and he carries it home, rejoicing. There's a picture of intimacy there. Like, he doesn't drive the sheep home with the shepherd's staff, right? Isn't that what the shepherd's staff is for? Like, when I go long, it's to catch me and pull me, you know, like the shepherd's staff. He doesn't drive the sheep home. He doesn't drag the sheep home. He picks him up, puts him on his shoulder, and goes home. And I imagine the guy singing. When it says he goes home rejoicing, I don't know if he just got a spring in his step and the day looks nice, you know, or whether he's actually singing. He's rejoicing as he goes home, it says. I imagine him singing. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says this. 
The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one who will save. And when he does, when he saves us, one of us, any one of us, anyone out there, he says, the mighty one who will save. And he will rejoice over you with gladness like the shepherd does. When he saves his lamb and he rejoices over it with gladness, he will quiet you by his love and take you on his shoulders and take you home, carry you home. And then it says he will exult over you with loud singing. I've been a Christian for, I don't know, 40 years now. I've got to do the math. It's a long time now. And I still, when I read that verse, I still have trouble believing, seeing, imagining God's exulting in song over me. That He exalts that He rejoices with gladness and that He exalts over us with singing. I imagine Him singing on His way home because that's what the shepherd does. And when He gets home, His joy is overflowing in verse 6. He reaches out to His friends and He organizes a party and says, come rejoice with me. Like, I'm not going to go home and like tap my foot by myself. You know, this kind of thing, you, you got to get... Until you share it, it's not complete, right? So you guys got to come rejoice with me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. But he's like, come. We're going to have a party. There's going to be singing and dancing. The shepherd's joy is contagious. He lost one sheep and it was found. And the entire community is gathering to celebrate. In verse 7, as we saw, Jesus interprets it. In case you're not getting what I'm telling you here. In case you're not seeing it. And you don't have years to hear, I'm going to make it as clear as I can possibly do it. I tell you, there is so much joy in heaven when a sinner repents. We have to see that. Like you guys, you know, the guys who are grumbling and complaining. That sinners are drawing near to Jesus and want to hear Him. Right? They, they, you guys got to hear this. If, if one of these guys comes to me and is comes to God, is reconciled with God, his life is changed. There's so much joy in heaven. Like, you guys, this is what it's all about, is what he's telling them. This is it. In fact, he tells three parables, I think, to make this point. Right? God's purpose in the world is to seek and to save sinners, and it's his great joy. It's, it, it's all about the joy of heaven and finding the lost. Three parables rebuking the self-righteous and showing us that receiving and eating with lost sinners is the path to the joy of salvation. To connect with people as people so that we have opportunity to share Christ with them. So as we apply this, and I have a number of applications, so the last point is sharing the Father's joy, which is my point here, and other applications. All right, so we'll just walk through a few. And the first one is, 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 is again, obvious. If it's been, God has revealed to you, if you have ears to hear, uh, that you're a sinner, like the rest of us here. I think everybody in this room would be like, hey, if you're a sinner, raise your hand. Right? But for a lot of folks, that comes as a surprise, as a revelation. When you come to that place and say that, yes, I am a sinner, then that, what that means is I need a Savior. We need Jesus. And if... The sinner is that person who doesn't know God the way they should, and they're, so they're not living according to His Word and His ways. You know, and it's that moment when we recognize that we all, we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. We're living for ourselves and not for Him, that He 
If you see that and you want to come home, the shepherd is after you. My friends, Jesus welcomes people like us. Right? This, is, this is the beauty in the, what is intended as an insult for us is the best news ever. Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners so that he can save them. They can come to faith in him. And so he invites us, even this image that he invites us to eat with him, it, it's an imagery of intimacy. Right? When you have a meal with people, you begin to share life. You, you, oh, you talk, right? you exchange, like you build friendship. That's how friendships are built. And so this is an invitation to a, re- a relationship, a friendship with him. And so the question is, do you have ears to hear? If you've not before, have you drawn near to Jesus to put your faith and your trust in him? Is the one who can bring you home and reconcile you to the Father and forgive your sins. I encourage you to do so. And talk to someone around, someone you know about it. Second application, I've already touched on it. I want to delve a little bit deeper into it because I am afraid, and I am afraid because I hear these conversations at times within the church, and I don't, I'm not calling out anybody in particular, and I'm not naming any names or anything, but I, I do want to say that I see it in Facebook and in other places in the church in general, the church in America, and I'm afraid that the attitude of the Pharisees is often prevalent in the American church. Self-righteous religious people, the good people, Complaining about the sinners out there. Complaining about them. They're the problem. Right? And we just need to take power and get control and fight these sinners who are ruining everything. Right? And there's this fight them mentality rather than they're the mission. Right? Are they, are they the mission? You know, or are they the problem? Jesus saw them as the mission. Even though these are the guys in Israel who are messing it all up. Right? We got a temple, we got priests, we got religious, like we got it all going on. God has, you know, given us prophecy, he's done all this stuff, and you guys are ruining it. Many Christians adopt an attitude of condescension or separation, even hostility, to the lost. But this, what we're looking at here is Jesus' SOP, right? Standard operating procedure. Right, this is how Jesus does it. It's a theme that runs through the Luke's gospel. We'll see that. There were more verses. I pared them down to just a couple, not to lose you. But, you know, it, it, it is in all the gospels and in Jesus' ministry, we see this operating. So in Luke 5, verse 30, a few chapters before us, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They're always grumbling. Right? They're around. They're watching Jesus operate, his standard operating procedure, and they complain about it from beginning to end unless you're Nicodemus or a couple of the others, but they're grumbled about it, saying and complaining to the disciples, why do you guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? You shouldn't be doing that. Right? Not if you're righteous people. You don't hang out with sinful people. Right? This is the way they do it, but, but here it is. We see before, this is their operating procedure. They're eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. Luke 19, some chapters after the one we're in, it says when they saw it, they all grumbled same people. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Like he went home with one. Like what kind of guy is that? Who does that? Jesus does that. It's his standard operating procedure to rub shoulders with, to respect and to love and to move toward and to relate to people who need to know him. He is seeking so that he can save the lost. 
Right now, we need to know that in Jesus' standard operating procedure, he spent a lot of time with hobnobbing with sinful people, that Jesus himself never sins. We need to say that. He doesn't become a sinner. He's not, he's not doing everything that they do. You know, he's not commiserating with the tax collectors and getting a cut of the pie. You know, he's not, you know, with the gluttons and the drunkards, he's with them. He may have a glass of wine with them, but he's not, he's not a, drunkard, a drunk and he's not a glutton. Well, he never sins, but he gets close enough to be accused of it, right? And that's Luke 7, 34 and 5. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, again, a, an utter insult. But then Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her children. In other words, the rightness of respecting and welcoming lost people and treating them this way, is that some of them come to repentance and faith. And wisdom is justified by our children. How many people are you bringing to a renewed relationship with God when you won't even talk to them? You won't give them the time of day. So the question that is begged here is, are we more like the Pharisees who look down on, see them as a problem, they're unclean. You can't eat with them. They might rub off on you or, you're worse, your children, right? Do we see them as a problem, something to be held at arm's length, you know, maybe even enemies if they're ruining good things? Are we more like the Pharisees or are we more like Jesus? Do we love and respect those who don't know him, right? Are we kind and welcoming to them? Do we treat them in such a way that they would want to draw near and hear more? Matthew chapter 9, 12 and 13, it says, those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which is a quote from Hosea 6, which again, he goes to their scripture and their law and their understanding, and he tells them again, God tells them there in Hosea, go learn what this means. And he's telling it to them now, and he's telling it to the church. We need to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And what does it mean? He interprets it for us. You can go back and look at the context. It's about, you know, he desires the knowledge of God more than burnt sacrifices. And in other words, it's not the formalities and the, and, the, and the rituals of religion that are of greatest importance to him. They had a place, but he's saying mercy. And he, he interprets it this way. If you go and learn what it means, it means this. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. So the third application then is this. It's related to that. Are you, are, am I, are we the kind of people that even our enemies are drawn to the Christ-likeness in us? Now I know when I say even your enemies, and you're a Christian, and you'll be like, I don't have any enemies. That's what do you do. You know, I mean, it's those people you don't want to eat with. Those people you don't like on Facebook, it's those people that, you know, that you're at odds with, that people that you don't want to be in their, I don't know. There are all kinds of different ways where we have people at arm's length. You know, maybe it's the group. You're in this group and they're in that group, right? Republicans and Democrats, you know. There are, the, there are all kinds of groups you can be part of, racial groups and otherwise, where the enemy is everybody in the other group. Jesus doesn't really know groups like that. They were tax collectors and sinners, but he was like, come on. That's not his group. But he wanted to be near them. 
He wanted to know them. He wanted them to know him. And so the, the, it really is this. You know, there was something about Jesus that was attractive. People wanted to know him. And they wanted to know more. Right? He teaches them all this hard teaching, which would repel a lot of people. You, you want me to do what? Uh, uh, that repels a lot of people. You need to hate your father and your mother, your brother and your sister, your wife and your children, even your own life if you're going to come after me. Right? There are a lot of things here to drive people away. But there was something about Jesus, even as he called people to commitment, is it, it says they drew near to hear more. There was something about Jesus that was welcoming. It wasn't condemning. It wasn't condescending. It wasn't judgmental. It was somehow people loved him. Crowds followed him everywhere. They wanted wherever Jesus was, they wanted to be in mass. Something about Jesus. They felt welcome. They felt safe. They felt respected. They wanted to spend time with him. And many of them ultimately wanted to follow him. And so we need to ask ourselves, what do lost people sense or experience when they interact with us? Right? Do we make Jesus attractive? So we need to take a hard look. Are we following Jesus in such a way that our hearts are humbled and gentled? And so they, we come across gracious and welcoming to, to everybody, to the worst of the sinners. When he named the tax collectors, like he went for the extreme of the most hated people in all Israel. I have some people say to me, well, Jesus, you know, could be harsh. We had a, a preacher that would come to my college campus and he would get up on the, uh, one of the stone benches outside the dining hall and preach. Right? He would condemn everybody. You, you know, if you were in a sorority or a, you know, a fraternity, you're all, you know, profligate and you're all sinners and you're all going to hell and if you don't turn, you're going to burn and he would stand and preach for a long time and offend everybody that went by, literally. And all the Christians would gather around like, we got to talk to this guy. Like, he is not representing Jesus in the way we would want him represented on our campus. Like, we're here, we live here to do that work of ministry and this guy but we would, I, we talked to him, and I remember this guy, and I've heard it from other people, and, he, and there would go two places when they justify their, their attitude. Number one, this guy likened himself to an Old Testament prophet. Now, did you read the prophets? This is the way they talk. You know, they're, you know, so he likened himself like an Old Testament prophet. And my first, first of all, you know, number one, I don't know that in the New Testament, the Old Testament prophets are our model, right? I mean, when you got Jesus, why step around him to go find a model that's different? When he said, follow me, imitate me, don't rise above your teacher, you know. But the second thing is, you shouldn't imitate the prophets if you're not one. I'm pretty sure he was not one. I'm pretty sure you're not one. Right? And we don't even believe that office is the same anymore. God called these men and spoke in them and gave us a scripture through them. So they're not the model. Like what God did in the prophets is not our model. And the New Testament makes that clear. But the other thing they would say is, well, you know, if Jesus is our model, you know, Jesus could be harsh, right? Jesus turned over, got angry and turned over tables and he, and he said, you guys are a brood of vipers or you're whitewashed tombs, you know, you're a bunch of hypocrites full of dead, you're whitewashed on the outside and inside you're full of hypocrisy and, and rot. And that is true. Jesus said those things. But you know who, and this is where I would encourage you to read the Gospels. If you've not caught it, you can read them again and look at it, and you'll see that the only people that Jesus ever said anything like that to 
were the self-righteous religious people who looked down with contempt on everybody else. It's the only people he spoke like that to. Self-righteous, to the church. He called the church out. He called out the religious leaders of his day. He called them out again and again. You're a bunch of hypocrites. But you'll find, even when he turns over the table, when he's angry at the, at the temple leadership, the, they, they, they made a, a market in the court of the Gentiles. What's the court of the Gentiles? It's where the nations who are interested in the God of Israel could come and learn about him and be a part of it and maybe find the God of Israel and find salvation. And the court of Gentiles, they turned it into a marketplace to buy and sell animals. And I say, go and learn what I mean. We desire mercy. Like this is our, where we touch the world and welcome them in so they can find the God of Israel. And Jesus is angry at them. He's angry at the church. The whitewashed tombs full of rot were the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law. It's the only people he spoke like. When you find him bumping into the worst of sinners, a woman caught in adultery, He's very gentle. When he bumps into almost anyone caught in sin or who comes to him, they're, they're the worst of sinners and they come to him. Jesus is never condemning, never harsh. He is always welcoming and kind. Anyone who knows their need and comes to Jesus is welcome. And he is gentle. In fact, when he says, come to me for I am gentle and humble of heart, He is speaking to the worst of sinners. And He is gentle. And He is humble. And may God's people be so. People should feel comfortable around us. And when they read our Facebook page, they should should want to know more. right? They should want to draw near. They may want to have a conversation, not be offended. right? Our Instagram posts or in any way that we interact with the world around us at work, at school. Are people attracted to Christ in us? Final application. We need to see the profound place that joy and celebration play in all this. Coming all around it. This is Jesus' point in the whole thing. is the joy of God in the salvation of sinners. Right? It plays out in all three parables. It's obvious that what should motivate us and encourage us to love the lost and to share our faith with them is all the joy of it. Right? And that's the way he tells all these parables. Is the joy of it. In our story that we just did, he carries the lamb home rejoicing and calls his friends together and has a party and, and he concludes it with his punchline, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner. Right? That's how he does this parable. In the next parable of the lost coin, he cl- concludes it in verse 9 and 10 with the person who lost it, the woman saying, rejoice with me, I found my coin that had been lost. And then Jesus, the punchline interpreting that parable says, just so, I tell you there is joy before the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. There is joy in heaven when one comes. And what are our lives that that welcome them in such a way, that interact with them in such a way that they would not be turned off, feel judged and put out and and holier than thou and held at arm's length and you're unclean. But what is it in our lives that would attract people to Christ? Joy. I don't know about you, but the times that I've had to share my faith with other people, I've never been more encouraged and excited. I can remember on many different occasions where just that door opens up 
And you get the, and they're interested. They, they're drawing near in a sense and they're interested. And you get to share with them the gospel. What a privilege it is. I can remember, you know, walking home, driving home, just excited, encouraged. That was awesome. I want to do that again. Right? And it's compounded. If that person comes to know Christ and the joy, the joy of being used by God, seeing a person come to Christ, get involved in a church, their life begin to change, their marriage gets saved, their, you know, their, their character grow, like there's nothing more exciting in, in the Christian life. It is, it is literally the kind of thing that is just jet fuel right, in, in, the, in the Christian life. What Luke, what Jesus jumps on is the Father's joy. It's the joy of heaven. I mean, it's joy on a grand scale. Over one sinner that repents. Right? He does it in, in the third one, verses 23 to 25, we see in the lost coin and the lost. And, you know, we all know this one, the prodigal son. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Eat and celebrate. This is my son who was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He was found. And over one child, one sheep, one coin, one lost one, they began to celebrate. The older brother came in from the field, and as he drew near, what did he hear? Music and dancing. Like, this is a major party. Like the fatted calf, like that's an expenditure. Like that's the big once in a year, once every two years kind of a feast. Right? We're going to have a feast. There's music. There's dancing. Because one child, one was saved. This is God's perspective. And Jesus tells these parables so that self-righteous religious people would understand the heart of God. And they'd be more like Jesus than the other guys in the story. We see the older son represents self-righteous religious people. But the father, he feasts. There's music and dancing. What should motivate us and encourage us to love the lost and to share our faith? And it's the sheer joy of it. Our own joy and the joy of the Father and being a part of it and understanding the heart of heaven. Just one sinner being saved. And is my life the kind of life that invites that in and sees it happen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. That you have sought us, each one of us, and saved us. We thank you that you exult and sing over us. Help us to believe it. And then help us to enter into the joy of it. As we would seek and save the lost and share the joy of heaven. As one would come and then another. Oh, Father, capture our hearts. And teach us to love the lost. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.